When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about the missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson. Often called the first missionary to Burma, he was more like the fourth, but he was by far the most successful and his ministry was the most long-lived. He was also one of the first missionaries from America to travel overseas. One of the missionaries that came before him was Felix Carey, who was William Carey's oldest son. Later on, I want to dedicate a a mini-episode to him because his story is so unknown and also very tragic, but it also serves as a warning tale. Adoniram was born in 1788 in Massachusetts. His father was a Congregationalist minister, and Congregationalists were Reformed Protestants who traced their roots back to the Puritans of New England, and this is important later. Adoniram was brilliant. He learned to read at three and would read his father chapters from the Bible. He also mastered Greek and Latin pretty early on in his childhood, and his father was obviously very hopeful for his future and that he would follow in his footsteps. But when he goes off to what is now Brown University in Rhode Island, he falls in with a crowd of deists or atheists and gets really into French philosophy. He's only a handful of years removed from the French Revolution and this whole Age of Enlightenment movement. And apparently Yale was so enamored with the Enlightenment philosophies and philosophers that instead of using their own names, they refer to each other by Thomas Paine, Voltaire, or John Rousseau. And can you imagine just how insufferable that would be? Oh, hello there, it's Thomas Paine. What I do, who do I see there? Oh, is that Voltaire? I don't know what they really sounded like, but that just kind of, to me, sums up that that just, it sounds obnoxious. Brown University had the same mindset trickle onto his campus as well, and one of Adoniram's flaws in his early years was his hubris, and he was just too smart for his own good. And when he announced his newfound atheism to his parents and reasoned his father into a corner and reduced his mother to tears, the person most instrumental in his fall from the faith was a man named Jacob Eames. When Adoniram graduated at 19, he set off on a gap year excursion with some friends and did all sorts of crazy things as one is wont to do, I suppose. And eventually they part company and he rides off to an inn for the night. When he gets there, the innkeeper tells him they only have one room left and it's next to a dying man. He can have that one if it doesn't bother him. He says it doesn't and he rents the room. All through the night, he hears this man dying in excruciating, agonizing, slow death. He hears his moans and screams and rants until he finally dies. The next morning, he asks the innkeeper who the man was, and he finds out that it was his best friend, Jacob Eames. And that shakes him to the absolute core. He witnessed what it was like for someone to die apart from God, and it was terrifying. 
and he almost immediately enrolls in seminary, but he's not yet a Christian, and in fact, the school broke policy to let him in, knowing he wasn't a believer. But by 1808, when he was 20 years old, he officially became a believer, and he joins up with a group called the Brethren, who are very missions-minded, and so missions-minded that they help organize the first official American Missionary Society. And Judson is particularly drawn to Asia. He and three other students go before the Congregationalist General Association to ask for support. And the elders were so moved by their sincerity and politeness that they formed the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Simultaneously, Adoniram is ordained to preach and is actually offered a position as an assistant pastor at a well-to-do church in Boston. This is like a fork-in-the-road moment for him. Does he take the cushy pastorate gig or does he continue going down the path, which in this time period meant almost certain death or serious illness? This is very similar to what happened with David Brainerd, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that means you haven't listened to the episode, so you should, and I'll link it in the description for you. Anyway, much to his family's dismay, he chooses to stay the course and become a missionary to India. And he wrote this snippet for a magazine a year before setting sail. How do Christians discharge this trust committed to them? They let three-fourths of the world sleep the sleep of death, ignorant of the simple truth that a Savior died for them. Content if they can be useful in the little circle of their acquaintances, they quietly sit and see whole nations perish for the lack of knowledge. I want to take a quick pause in Adam Myram's story to focus on that of his first wife, Anne, who is also known as Nancy. Born in 1789, she was only a year younger than her husband, and she grew up in a very wealthy, well-to-do Christian family. And she really struggled between this disdain for the comforts she loved and chasing after the comforts that she loved. And she really embodied this verse in Romans 7.15, where Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. She loved dances and parties and fashion, and her family was at the forefront of any societal event. When she was 16, she was finally able to reconcile these two warring passions and dedicated herself wholly to God, no matter what the cost, no matter what the loss of her comfort. She met Adoniram at a dinner party her parents were hosting, and they were both very intelligent people, dedicated to the Lord with similar passions and interests. And they got on so well that he wrote Nancy a letter a month later asking for her hand in marriage. She took a very long time to respond, a very long time as far as engagement letters go. And when she finally got back to him over a week later, she told him to ask her father. This is a letter her father received. I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to hardships and suffering of a missionary life, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means by eternal woe and despair? Now imagine receiving that letter regarding your child from a man she's hardly known for a month. How would you react? And what would you say? He chose to leave the choice to Nancy. Is this who she wanted to spend her life with? And is this how she wanted to spend her life? Nancy decided that yes, this is exactly how she wanted to spend her life, and this is the man she wanted to spend it with. The two are married in 1812 and almost immediately set sail on a four-month voyage to Calcutta, India. He sails with a couple other people, although they're on different ships. And one of these people is a man named Luther Rice, and he's a pivotal part of the story here in a bit. And now I've mentioned a little bit about Adoniram's congregationalist roots, and everybody on their way to India at the moment is a congregationalist. And if you know anything about missions during this time, you know that William Carey was a staunch Baptist from England, and he's heading up the missionary movement in India. And he's been there for a little over 20 years. And I've also mentioned Adoniram's bent towards hubris. 
there was one stark difference between Congregationalists and Baptists, and that was the issue of believers' baptism. Congregationalists sprinkled infants, and Baptists baptized following a profession of faith. Adoniram, his wife, Luther Rice, and the other missionary couple decided to use the four months they spent on the ships to research believers' baptism and tell William Carey off when they got there. This is kind of a funny picture to me because Carey has been doing missions in India for about as long as Adoniram has been alive, and he's beloved the world over. But Adoniram thinks he's going to tell the great William Carey where he's wrong and that he's been doing everything just wrong. But something happened. While they're preparing an argument against believers' baptism, they instead become convinced of the biblical mandate for it. So they have to eat some serious crow. When they land, Luther Rice was on a different ship and had no contact with the Judsons, also decided that he too was a proponent of believers' baptism, and the three of them, minus the other couple, are baptized by an associate of William Carey's and become Baptists. And I find this story so amusing, but it also had some real consequences. They had to write back to their sending agency and tell them they were no longer Congregationalists, and imagine the faith that that must have taken. You just arrive in a foreign country, your only source of income and support is almost 8,000 miles away. When their sending agency hears the news, they cut them off. And now they're alone and completely unsupported. But Luther Rice, having become sick in India, heads back to America with plans to ask the Baptists for their support. And he was instrumental in forming the first Baptist Mission Society. It was called the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States of America for Foreign Missions, which is quite the mouthful. Thankfully, it was more commonly referred to as the Triennial Convention. Adoniram and Nancy become its first missionaries. They haven't been in India very long when they're forced out by the British East India Company. They really didn't like missionaries because it changed the status quo for them and the status quo was good for business. And especially they disliked British missionaries, they disliked American missionaries far more. Which makes sense because they were pushed out in 1813, what was happening in 1813, the War of 1812. The American missionaries in India at the time went their separate ways and the Judsons ended up heading to Burma, which is now Myanmar. And Calcutta, where they were, is on the upper eastern coast of India, and Burma is directly across the Bay of Bengal. On their way there, Nancy suffered a miscarriage, and they lost their very first child. And when they arrived, Burma was a rough sight to behold. William Carey's son Felix, whom I mentioned at the top of the episode, said of it, The houses of Rangoon were miserably built, the streets were filthy with vermin, the rents wickedly oppressive, the taxes absurdly high, and the punishments barbarous. Mass executions and tortures were a common occurrence, the government was entirely corrupt, and they certainly didn't like missionaries. Conversion from Buddhism was punishable by death. When the Judsons arrived, they immediately began setting about learning the language. Burma actually has 111 languages, with Burmese being the most common, but it's an extremely difficult language to learn, especially for English speakers. It takes roughly 1,100 hours to become generally proficient, and that's compared to 600 hours for Spanish, and that's with all the helpful aids in the 21st century. So imagine trying to learn it in the early 1800s. They found a tutor and studied diligently for 12 hours a day, and it took them over three years to learn to speak it proficiently. Adoniram held his first semi-public meeting, and there wasn't really a lot of interest. People came out of curiosity, but that was about it. And he also had a very different approach to his attire than other missionaries we've covered, namely Amy Carmichael and Mary Slessor. Hudson Taylor we haven't covered yet, but he's also in the same camp. He decided not to wear native clothing. He tried it for a bit, at first wearing yellow robes, but then deciding that he looked a little bit too much like a Buddhist monk to white robes, and finally to his customary Western clothing. He felt it made him look a little fake and ineffective. So it's interesting that it worked for others, but it didn't necessarily work for him, and that could have been a personal choice, could have been a cultural choice. Not really sure, but that was his choice. He did adapt in other ways, though. He built his house on native style and used it for meetings. And it was during this time, a few years after their arrival, that they lost their second child, Roger, when he was almost eight months old. 
It took five years, but Judson was finally able to translate the Gospel of Matthew into Burmese. And in 1819, six years after their arrival, they finally had their first convert. Can you imagine? You're working day in and day out to learn the language, translate the book of Matthew, holding almost daily meetings, and it still takes six years. How disheartening would that be, especially combined with the loss of your child? But how sweet and exciting would that first Burmese Christian be? By 1822, they had a church of 18 believers and were in the process of building schools. The church chronicler who was Burmese wrote about the conversion process for many fellow Burmese. One traveled the whole path to Christ in three days, another took two years. But once they decided for Christ, they were his for all time. The essence of Judson's preaching was a combination of conviction of the truth with the rationality of the Christian faith, a firm belief in the authority of the Bible, and a determination to make Christianity relevant to the Burmese mind without violating the integrity of the Christian truth, or as he put it, to preach the gospel, not anti-Buddhism. 1822 was also the year that Nancy became sick and had to go back home to America for two years. Adoniram wanted to come with her, but she refused because the church was so important and so fragile. And while she was there, she wrote a book called An Account of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire, which made their work and missions in Burma very well known, although they wouldn't know it until years later, and Nancy would never know it. When she comes back in 1824, Adoniram has translated the entire New Testament into Burmese, and there's an official church building, a printing press, and a school, as well as a few new missionaries. Things are looking pretty good. But then war breaks out between Britain and Burma, and all Western men are considered spies of Britain and are rounded up and sent to death prisons. Adoniram among them. Burmese prisons, as you can imagine, were awful. Prisoners were stuffed together in a large room, double shackled at the feet and hands, elevated in such a way that only their head and shoulders touched the ground. Rats and other terrible things would crawl all over them and take opportunistic bites. The man next to you could die, and removal might not be a top priority of the day. And to make matters worse, the jails were run by convicted murderers whose sentences were pardoned in exchange for their service. They gladly accepted. Each morning, the sound of a gong would cut through the stillness, causing panic among the men. Soon a jailer would appear in shadow at the door and remove just one man. He had no particular man chosen before he entered. It was entirely random. The man would then be taken away and executed. During his time in prison, Adoniram prayed, Lord, let me finish my work. Spare me long enough to put thy saving word into the hands of a perishing people. Nancy worked tirelessly for his release, talking to officials, bribing guards in order to bring him food. Soldiers were ransacking homes, and she was afraid that his New Testament translation would be lost. So she sewed it into his pillow and talked a guard into letting him use it. Another guard liked it so much that he took it. And so when Nancy heard about this, she made the guard a new, more comfortable one and traded it giving the old one back to Adoniram and therefore saving the New Testament. Smallpox was raging through the city, and the little girl that she had given birth to during his imprisonment also came down with it, but recovered. Nancy became very ill, and her milk dried up, and she was unable to feed the baby, whose name was Maria. She went from home to home each day, begging someone to help feed her baby. After almost two years in prison, Adoniram's value as an interpreter was realized among Burmese officials. They released him, and he interpreted the peace treaty between Burma and Britain. And when he was finally able to see his wife and baby, what he saw shocked him. His baby, malnourished and filthy, was being cared for by a Burmese woman, and his wife was inside the house, a mere shadow of her former self. The war had taken its toll on her. She was gaunt and pale, and her head had been shaven. She rallied long enough for them to move, and then in 1826, she passed away at the age of 26. The warnings of Adoniram's letter all those years ago having been realized. Adoniram was devastated. They had spent most of their last four years together apart, and he poured all of his love and affection to Maria. But sadly, the brutality of her first two years of life had taken its toll on her as well, 
and six months after Nancy passed away, Maria too passed away at the age of two and a half. He dug both of their graves himself. After they died, he moved into a tiger-infested jungle. Living in a hut for 40 days, he dug his own grave. He contemplated death. He wrestled with God and tore up his diplomas and honorary doctorates. These things which had once meant so much to him were detestable to him now. While he was there, he wrote, It proves a stormy evening, and the desolation around me accords the desolate state of my own mind, where grief for the dear departed combines with sorrow for present sin. And my tears flow at the same time over the forsaken grave of my dear love and over the loathsome sepulcher of my own heart. When he went away, the locals expected never to see him again, because nobody survived those jungles. When he emerged 40 days later, they considered it a miracle. And even so, it took him nearly four years to finally emerge from the deep depression and spiritual darkness that had overtaken him with the loss of his wife and child. On the third anniversary of Nancy's death, he wrote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Due to his imprisonment for two years, he bore these vivid scars on both his wrists and his ankles, and he asked for permission to enter a neighboring province and share the gospel. This was the reply of the ruler. My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. Some of the greatest success Adoniram had as a missionary was to a Burmese minority known as the Karin. They were not Buddhists, but rather followers of animism. But interestingly enough, they had a knowledge of the events of the Old Testament, and it's possible they were visited by Nestorian Christians sometime in the early hundreds, one, two, three, we're not really sure. But they knew an awful lot about the Old Testament, and so when they heard about Jesus, they were very excited and converted seemingly in mass. Adoniram completed translated the entire Bible, and it had taken him roughly 20 years. He also received many more missionaries to train and was remarried to Sarah Boardman, the widow of a fellow missionary, a few years later. The two had eight children together, with five of them surviving to adulthood. By 1837, there were 1,144 baptized converts living in Burma. Less than 10 years into their marriage, Sarah's health began to fail, and the two set sail for America in hopes that she could recover there. She died en route, and he continued alone with a few of their oldest children. And when he got to America, he was greeted like a celebrity, and he had absolutely no idea anyone even knew who he was. He hadn't been back in almost 40 years. He was an inspiration to so many, due in part to Nancy's book that she had written so many years before— and also due to Luther Rice's diligent work popularizing the work of the Baptist missionaries. He was a literal hype man for Adoniram Judson. And while he was there, Judson was asked to speak at a lot of different events. But he could only speak with assistance because he had this lung condition that caused frequent laryngitis, and he was unable to speak above a whisper. He was only in America for about a year before returning to Burma with his third wife, Emily Chubbuck. And only been back for a few years when his health began to take a turn for the worst that was caused by his severe lung infection. He was told his one chance of survival was to leave Burma. He was lovingly loaded onto a boat by his many beloved children in the faith, and they wept deeply as his ship pulled away, knowing that they would never see him again. He didn't even make it out of the Bay of Bengal, and he passed away on April 12, 1850, at the age of 61. Shortly before he died, he said, I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of this world. Yet when Christ calls me home, I shall go with gladness. Adoniram Judson lived a life that many of us wouldn't envy. He lost two wives and at least six children. He was tortured for two years and was the only survivor of a death march. Yet when he arrived in Burma, to our knowledge, not a single soul knew the Lord. And at the time of his death, there were over 8,000 Christians and 100 churches. Today, Christians account for 6% of Myanmar's 54 million population. After his first convert so long ago, he wrote, In spite of sorrow, loss, and pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain. We reap on Zion's hill. 
and we can't speak about Myanmar without talking about the recent events. On February 1st of this year, the military took over the country in a coup. Since then, over 500 people have been killed, including at least 40 children. So continue to pray for resolution and peace in Myanmar and for the many people who are suffering. If you enjoyed hearing about the life of Adoniram Judson, please share this episode and also go over to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars if you haven't already. Also, big thanks to Kelly who upgraded our Patreon with us this week. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And as always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.